This podcast, number 830 with Clifford Hudson, about his new book, Master of None, is brought to you by Barry Habib, author of a new book entitled Money in the Streets, a playbook for finding and seizing the opportunity all around you. This interview with Barry delves into his personal life stories and the many lessons that he has learned and imparts to the reader with the heartfelt purpose of transforming you and your relationship to the world. If you want to get more inspired and learn some very simple lessons about how to live your life, from treating others with respect to thanking those who have helped you along the way, then you'll want to listen to my interview with author Barry Habib about his new book, Money in the Streets. To learn more about Barry, please visit his website at www mbshighway.com that's www.mbshighway.com and now for our featured podcast please listen to my interview with cliff hudson about his new book called master of none how a jack of all trades can still reach the top happy listening thanks Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I have a HarperCollins book and a new author um, on with me today from Oklahoma City. And his name is Clifford Hudson. And the book is Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. Good day to you, Cliff. Good morning, Greg. How are you doing? Good, good. It's a pleasure having you on, and I think I should let my listeners know that Cliff was also the former CEO of Sonic uh, Corporation. For all of my listeners, if you want to learn more about Cliff, just go to cliffordhudson.com. That's H-U-D-S-O-N.com. There you can download a free chapter of the book. You can also look at Cliff's rules. It's actually a really cool website. He even has Discover Cliff's Journey there. Um, So you can go all the way back and look at his history, which I thought is really fascinating. I think for most authors to kind of see how they evolved in their life. Um, Cliff obviously is a very accomplished individual. You don't get to be the CEO of Sonic Corporation. But I'm going to let our listeners know a tad bit about you. He is the former general counsel, president, chief executive officer, and chairman of Oklahoma City-based Sonic Corporation. And for those of you who don't know what Sonic is, that's that great drive through hamburger joint. I'm just going to call it that. But it is a, if you've never had a burger there, just go look at the commercials. They got those two guys in the front seat of the car. A uh, lifelong student of experiences fueled uh, by unending curiosity. He writes about curiosity in his book, too, and we're going to get into that. He's also served as a number of roles, most notably as Jack of all trades. And that's what this book is about. Um, in the Clinton administration, he served as chairman of the board for the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Cliff also serves as a trustee of the Ford Foundation and is the past chairman of the board of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. This is his first book. I don't know if it's going to be his last, but it is his first book. And he challenges us to establish thinking and explores whether or not mastery is needed to succeed. Instead, he sees variety and diversity being essential for success. His career, life, and interests are all proof of that. Well, Cliff, a pleasure having you on. 
Um, I remember George Leonard. If I go back to those days, he wrote a book called Mastery, you know, mm. and it always mm. fascinated me because George was a fascinating guy. And I did a four hour interview with him in his living room, used to work for Look Magazine. And ma- mastery is an interesting topic, but I want to start off with, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is pretty well known, uh, writes a lot of books, sells a lot of books. And you cite right on the book jacket that this research for outliners where you had to have a 10,000 hours of whatever it is that you were trying to master, whether it's the flute, it's the piano, it's whatever it might be, or a particular skill. Um, to be a success in an endeavor, you believe that this is not as important uh, and that I want to know what your philosophy is about mastering something or as a state of being, as you call it, this master of none. Because we've heard this jack of all trades, master of none. It's been out there for a long time. Um, Why do you believe that we should be kind of taking this route to have more fun and I want to call flexibility in our life? Well, it's interesting that you do go to the uh, book cover. A couple of things about the, the the subtitle, you know, how a jack of all trades can still rise to the top, to reach the top. Um, that term, you said we've heard the term for a long time. That term uh, does uh, arise. Uh, the earliest reference to it is with a fellow by the name of Robert Green and uh, his criticism of a peer of his, and I suspect most of the listeners are probably asking who's Robert Green, and in part that's the point of the story. Uh, he he did use that that term that uh, uh, a peer of his was a, a jack of all trades, but a master of none. Uh, uh, going on four hundred years ago, and uh, and so who was that? Well, his criticism was of William Shakespeare, and that William Shakespeare was a jack of all trades. And uh, lo and behold, of course, uh, centuries later, everyone knows who William Shakespeare is. Nobody knows who Robert Greene is, and uh, in spite of Greene's criticism of Shakespeare. So um, I think the, uh, the, 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 in part, the title of the book, the two hang together, of course. The, the main title, Master of None, the, su- the subtitle, How Can a, a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top? Uh, in my life, uh, this uh, this idea of variety and the and the jack of all trades has really been a significant theme. And so, in many ways, for my memoir here, utilization of the subtitle is pretty critical. Uh, without the subtitle, I think the title of the book, you know, for me and and for my uh, course, my path, uh, the the book title doesn't make as much sense. In uh, in thinking about the Malcolm Gladwell um, theme. Uh, of of the the idea that the ten thousand hours is critical, um, I don't have any doubt uh, that in many pursuits, uh, to the extent that the um, uh, pursuit itself, you know, the brain surgeon, uh, maybe maybe many other things, a professional musician or professional athlete, um, there probably are aspects of uh, their pursuit in which the repetitive nature or the uh, incredible depth uh, that they would go to for preparation are really essential for them developing that specialty. I remember here watching several years ago in an off season um, how uh, um, uh, one of the players for the New York Yankees, what he would do when they quote, weren't playing and the level of discipline that, that uh, he would go through Don Mattingly in the, in the off season 
uh, was quite uh, extraordinary, including repetitive batting practice, you know, <laughs> through the winter. So here's a guy who no doubt spent that kind of time uh, in repetitive preparation. Right. And, and, and it made a big difference for his career. So I think there is still uh, it. The title of the book and the theme are not intended in any way to say that that kind of preparation doesn't have its place. Rather, uh, I think it is to say there is another way in life and there are alternatives in life that don't involve that degree of intensity and single singular focus. And yeah, and I think how- I think what you write about is curiosity. And I think many when you look from a business context and you look at people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and the people that have tremendous curiosity, Cliff, I think maybe that's the angle we're looking at. You know, it's not a matter of mastering everything, but it's a matter of seizing opportunity as well. And you speak about that in the book. And you know, you tell a story about becoming the CEO of Sonic. And that it wasn't planned. And I think that's also kind of a big theme of why you said master of none. Much, many of us have things happen in our life that are unplanned and it takes us down a path, takes us down another journey. And um, this is your being thrust into the position and in your estimation, maybe not being able to plan for that, but also maybe not being totally up to uh, the skill level that you'd want to be uh, when that happened. What, if you would tell a little bit about the story, because you were kind of thrust into the position, you walked in a boardroom meeting and, you know, guys said, I'm, I'm on a plane to go to my next job. And, you know, you ended up with this position, but you weren't expecting it. Right. And That's so correct. I think the important thing about that is that you have to become kind of a Jack of all trades when something like that happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So my yeah. So my preparation for that, um, uh, uh, as you as you know, my background did not include a business education. My undergraduate work was uh, focused on history, and and then I had a law degree. That in in law school, I did study uh, several courses that were business law focused, and then went into a business practice. Um, but uh, uh, that had more to do with business law and less to do with with management or marketing or other underpinnings of business. Right. I jo- I joined Sonic as a general counsel, and in a way, uh, you know, if when I was appointed CEO, uh, if there was anything that had occurred, it was you know a dozen years, ten or eleven years of preparation, you might say. Right. And and it was, and when I say preparation, uh, it was. Uh, learning a lot about that company, not some other company, and not necessarily about business generally. Uh, it was about learning how what the history of this company was and who its franchisees were and what the politics of those relationships were and and you know, how we made money, how we didn't make money, et cetera, et cetera, what the peculiarities were about the company in, in, in growing and making money. So um, I had a long time training, even though um, it wasn't my view. All the years I was general counsel, I had no expectation, uh, zero, that I would ever run the company. Um, my boss, uh, after I was with the company eight years and we had taken the company public, I'd had a huge education, particularly in corporate finance, uh, on the job training. Um, and he asked me if I wanted to become CFO, chief financial officer. Right. A year after we went public. And my thought was, you know, okay, I've been general counsel here for eight years. Why not? You know, I had a big education in corporate finance. 
It was pre-Sarbanes-Oxley and a lot of complexities that the law and, and the world had later. And so I agreed to do that. And it was good for me. It pulled me into the company in a different way uh, than I would have otherwise in terms of understanding uh, the uh, the you know particular aspects of the company, particularly reporting it to the to the world. But after a year of that, I was uh, then approaching forty years old, and um, uh, and I'd been with the company, gosh, nine years, I guess at that point. And I and I told my boss that I was going to leave, and and my thought was. I only got one life. I want to see what other experiences might be. Mm-hmm. And not not long. He was quiet about it for a while. And I, I gave him six months notice because I felt like he was going to have to really restructure some elements of the management team and processes. Um, and after a short while, he came to me and said, well, why don't, why don't you just move to the chief operating officer role and uh, and stay here? And so my thought was, well, I was thinking about going out and doing something different. I could stay here and do something different. So what the heck? And yeah, I, I, I so I took that, I took that on, and and had that job for a year and a half. When April 1995, he came into a board meeting and said, "I'm leaving," and board said, "When?" And he said, "Today." Well, and look, he, when you look at it, Cliff, what you just said is you had been in all these positions and you'd been learning a, quite a bit about the company in these different positions in the operations of the company. So what right. better person kind of, even though maybe you didn't think you were prepared to actually step up and do that. And I'm sure that's what the board thought as well. Now, you know, much of your book revolves around these rules of thumb. And I love the rules of thumb, so I want to get to those. Okay. And you mentioned that we seek stability and veer away from uncertainty, but that stability is a myth. This is rule number one for all my listeners. Your personal story kind of exemplifies some of the instabilities, your family losing their home, your father losing his business in the 60s. You write about that. And I think all of our listeners out there can relate to uncertainty and loss at some point in their life. Something happened to them along the way. What do you believe people learn from adversity and how does this better prepare us for being more flexible and uh, for embracing being a a jack of all trade? Well, I think that uh, to the extent that the um, uh, adversity uh, is is, uh, um, not too uh, shocking, you know, to the system, um, uh, adversity is something that uh, does generally make us stronger and uh, uh, creates a stronger backbone in us and uh, helps us uh, uh, approach uh, ordinary challenges, but significant challenges prospectively with, you know, with how we learn to deal with it in the, in the first case. Um, it also can be, um, uh, depending on how we deal with this. And, you know, earlier in your life, something that's a significant development may appear to be uh, a big problem, maybe even catastrophic. But as we go through life, we understand uh, we have a different perspective about that, the significance of it, what it means for us. So, in fact, I think for the person that absorbs this and absorbs it uh, well and learns from these changes, changes that were not of their own creation, I think what it can help a person do in the in the best circumstances, it helps them uh, start seeing these things as opportunities right. rather than challenges, right. and and it, and it means that they can embrace them in a positive way. And and in, in essence, though 
the manner which arose would not was not their own doing. It can, in a way, become their choice once they uh, embrace it and and move forward with it. And in a way, that's the most positive thing that can happen from that kind of um, uh, uh, reaction development to to adversity. I think. Yeah, and I think the key, the most important key, and you bring it out, is not resisting. Right. A lot of times these things happen to people and we can spend our life telling ourselves a story about what happened to us and then reliving that story over and over and again. And, you know, look, my show is called Inside Personal Growth. The key Mm. here is not to keep living the old story, but to be able Mm. to move beyond it and not resist it. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a key here. Your second rule is that your impact is greater when you are. And I'm going to underline this word not in complete control. Now that goes contrary to what a lot of people would think, but the reality is I understand it quite clearly because this opens you up for more opportunity. Now you mentioned that control is about trust uh, or lack thereof. Okay. And that's true in a marriage. It's true in anything in life. It's true with your kids. Okay. You cite the late Tony Hesch, the founder of Zappos, which, by the way, we were just talking about in a travesty. He passed away in a, in a home fire. Um, be yourself and use your best judgment. Tony was really known for giving his employees autonomy. I mean, right. when you really look at it, that was all that Tony did was like, come to work, have fun, put pictures up all over the place, you know jump around, wear monkey suits, whatever you want to do. But but it made it a fun place to work. So right. my question is, um, what is it about providing autonomy to the employees that makes perfect sense in your estimation? Uh, the other thing I was going to cite is, um, you know, a long time ago, Herb Kelleher, the CEO of Southwest Airlines, always used to say he'd run around with M&Ms and give them out to the people and he'd give them hugs and kisses. And he had a great environment and there was lots of kind of videos done about him. Right. But the big key he did was autonomy. When somebody came to the gate and the flight was canceled, you had the ability to give people a pass to go get a meal or to give them a dinner, but to use your judgment, tell us why that worked at Sonic. Yeah. Well, I think there there are easily a couple of um, things that in, in in the immediate situation and over time um, make a huge difference by uh, giving uh, subordinates autonomy and allowing them to um, uh, uh, really, in essence, what you're allowing them to do is is grow and develop, uh, which is the more long term result. The short in the short term, um, it is. Uh, it's very affirming to the individual and it, it strikes me that they're far more likely to take charge of a situation uh, uh, that may be obvious if you give them, you give them the opportunity to take charge. But when I say that, I really mean take take uh, ownership of problems, take ownership of challenges. And uh, I, I'm confident we did this time and time again at Sonic over the years that I was the CEO and times at times we did it formally um, uh, which I would have several examples, and but on ongoing basis, we did it informally, in terms of individuals' um, uh, autonomy over their area of responsibility. And since I left the company after it was acquired a couple of years ago, uh, I've had individuals who have moved on to other circumstances tell me that it strikes them after their years at Sonic, it just how much autonomy they did have 
and um, and they perhaps didn't appreciate uh, at the time the degree that they that they um, uh, enjoyed in, of autonomy at Sonic. In the, in the immediate situation, I think you get an em- employee who does take ownership of a challenge and uh, does not only, if, if it is in the nature of a problem, help solve it, but to the extent that it is an opportunity for the company, uh, they will take ownership of it, as I say, and help it become something different for the company than they would if they felt like they didn't have that. Right. In the long, in the long run, I think what happens is you develop different people. Yeah, and I, I also think I also think Cliff, like you do, I'm sure. That looks, many companies. To me, there's a big difference between guidelines and rules. Okay, right. I think it's okay to give a set of guidelines. Guidelines right. to me say, hey, right. Right. you have some freedom to move one way or the other. You have autonomy. Right. But when there's a rule, I've, how many times have you? you know, called up a company to get customer service and it goes, well, this is our rule. You've got to do yeah, this this right, way. Right? right. And right, as the right. customer, you're so pissed off because yeah. you think the rule is silly. You look right. at it and you go, right. well, how did this get ingrained in people's minds? Because they think this is an important thing to do. And I, and right. I was going to cite an example, but I won't because I just went through it with a phone that I'm, that I'm returning mm. that yeah. actually the whole back came off of. Right. But, mm. but the, the point is, is that is it a rule is it a guideline who has autonomy, who can make a decision. All of that's important. And I think Tony embraced that. I yeah. know you embraced it. Exonic. Now your third rule is harmony. And you say yes. harmony requires contrast and multiple voices um, yes. in the book. You reminisce about music from the sixties and seventies, just, proves our age. And you go on to state that in the music, as in music in life, the strength of harmony is never so apparent as when you see the weaknesses that occur when harmony breaks down. Obviously in a band, a jazz band, it doesn't matter, a choir, when that happens, but also in business. How would you advise the listeners in creating more harmony in their business cultures? Because let me tell you, this is a big one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, uh, um, the um, non-musical uh, term that is at the base of uh, the harmony being the result, um, the process in a, in a group situation is, is uh, um, ensuring a high degree of collaboration and uh, 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 engagement. Uh, the voices are heard. Um, that uh, one voice is not the dominant voice. And, and to go back to your point about the rules, uh, all organizations have to have guidelines. And you know, in other words, what are what are the guardrails? What are the parameters? You mm-hmm. know that the that you're you're going to establish. But then, but then, folks have to be free. Need to be free to operate within those and have creativity. But the group does have to come together uh, towards common goals, etc. My my uh, you know my context for this is running a franchise organization. And so the, the issue and why, why is that a, a big deal? Because these individual franchisees are owner operators of uh, restaurants in our case, mm-hmm. and, and they put millions of dollars up and at risk uh, in their businesses. And they're not interested in doing that. And then, and to be dictated to uh, particularly when they're in their view, it's somebody knows less about their business than they do, yeah. which is not, not necessarily true, but that is their perspective often. And so engaging them in the development of new technologies that are going to be utilized, 
uh, engaging them in the testing of new products, engaging them in the um, uh, the helping in the design and the implementation of new trade dress. You know what a, what a restaurant's going to look like and, uh, and how it may change uh, consumers' perspective. Um, these are collaborative processes that, from my standpoint, yield uh, a better um, nature of engagement of the individuals, mm-hmm. and they yield a better result, which all of the participants are more inclined to embrace. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it, it's, it really brings up this point, you know, um, when, you're, when you're working in harmony, right, and you're working in balance, I'm sure – you know, always pay. So it's like the feedback. So all these franchise owners, obviously at Sonic, like all franchises, you have a forum of these people, you know, you bring them in, you, you want to yes. get their ideas, you want to get their input, especially right. because they're entrepreneurs, they want to be heard. Yes. And the most important thing you can do is listen to them because that creates the balance. If yes. you start creating rules for them that don't work because they weren't heard, you guarantee yep. yourself they're not going to follow your rules. Yep, yeah, okay? right. it's, it's, it starts off with an unhealthy dynamic when you yeah. move that direction. So you yeah. created that. I know you did. And, you know, I think it's important for our listeners, you know, when they read through this book, Master of None, Jack of All Trades, all these things we're talking about, while business-related, can be applied personally as well. Yes. And so rule number four Say yes, and then figure it out. Okay, well, a lot of my listeners have heard that. Uh, You mentioned that the human species is programmed to do road activities and stay in routine autopilot. Couldn't agree with you more. You encourage the readers to break free and go beyond survival and certainty. What what, What do we evolve into when we live our life free from the mental mindset of autopilot and certainty. I mean, I've read books on uncertainty. I know you've seen them. They're always fascinating, but we have this little trigger in our brain that says, I don't like that. You know, look, I've jumped out of planes. I've been in New Zealand. I've been in flyby wires. I've done all kinds of things that are scary Mm. because Mm. I like them. I enjoy that. There's a lot of people that don't like or never would jump out of a plane in a parachute because they don't know about the uncertainty of landing. Okay. So what would you tell people about, you know, hey, this is, I mean, look, this is one of the main themes in your book. This is one of them. There are many. These are all, these are rules. But the reality is say yes and then figure it out. Okay. Uh, A lot of people would say, wait a second, I want to draw the diagram first before I actually say yes. Right. (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and different people's heads work differently. Yeah. And there are people, there are some people that are very structured. Um, I'm, I'm married to one of those, you know, very mm-hmm. structured and they like to do things in a plotting way and they like to have some predictability about their next step. I think this is a corollary of the degree of curiosity that the person has and how they mm-hmm. uh, exercise that curiosity. Uh, I mentioned that about uh, being married to someone. I am of a, a contrasting style. That is, I'm more likely to say, okay, yeah, let's give that a shot and then figure it out. I think there are two things about that. Uh, uh, one, I talk about in the book, even from my own standpoint, um, 
had I did I have a finance or accounting background? No. Did that keep me from being willing to become CFO? No. I had had on-job training and I had an apparatus around me, a public accounting firm working with us and so on. I th- I, my reaction was, I'll figure this out. You know? You'll learn it. And and I'll, uh, there's <laughs> there's enough of an apparatus that it, I shouldn't really get into big trouble, and it may be a real upside. You know. And and then particularly with the COO job, I mean that was a that was a a new experience altogether. But that was one too that I thought, well, how many times in my life, if I say no to this, how many times in my life will I have the opportunity to do something like this again? Yeah. And the answer answer is unknowable, except I've got a, a bird in the hand, and the 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 other is totally unknowable. And so I took it, even though. Um, I mean, believe me, when I was made COO and when I was made CEO, there were any number of people in our business, in our system, who wondered what the board of directors had done, you know, quote, appointing a lawyer, you know, as the CEO. So I think I think both as it relates to your own career experience, this is a critical attitude. But it's also well, but true you, when you're you when, talk when you're, about pardon me for interrupting, but you right. talk about labels in your book. Yeah. You know, how we label people. You might be by training a lawyer. I have a brother right. who's a, he's the top partner at Cooley Godward. Okay. But does that mean that that's all he is? No. Right. The guy's right. a surfer. He rides a motorcycle. He's, he's hmm. a risk taker. He's a whatever, you know, you got to see behind the curtain. And as I say, you know, labels are only meant because in a hierarchy of structure, there's a label. You're still Clifford Hudson you're, and you're still curious and that's who you are and you're still a risk taker. And right. all you're really trying to say here is if you if you say no to somebody that comes by and is asking you to say yes, yeah. you give up a lot of opportunity. And Cliff, you speak about Jim Barnett here. Um, yeah, ba- Barrett, 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 yes. Being yeah, one Barrett. of the most important individuals Right. That changed your life for the better. Right. Okay. Unintended. Unintended. Yeah. <laughs> what what Jim did goes along with the rule of thumb number five, which is seize opportunity created by others, which we were just talking about. Right. You know, Jim was the one that gave you this opportunity. You might not created have seen it, it at the point he yeah. created right. it. Yeah. Can you tell yeah. our listeners about Jim and the opportunity created in your life? Yeah, so Jim Barrett was a uh, uh, in the book I refer to him as a wily coyote. He was yeah. an interesting fellow. Uh, he uh, uh, I don't know what his academic background was, except that he he also studied law. And by the time I met him, was not practicing law and hadn't in years. But uh, he he was a uh, um, quite a character. Uh, when by the time I started dealing with him, he was a Sonic franchisee and a stockholder of our company. He had become a stockholder of our company years before, um, and and in fact was uh, years before was a member of our board of directors, a significant stockholder, and a franchisee. And um, the the so he he was quite wrapped up with our brand. Now, um, by the time I started dealing with him, though, from a business standpoint. Uh, at Sinek, he was no longer a member of our board of directors and no longer an officer of the company. Mm-hmm. And and instead, he was still a stockholder and he was uh, and a significant franchisee. But he was uh, he was aggravated at having it pushed out, and he didn't like the direction the company was going. Mm-hmm. So how how he came into the story here, and he came to into affecting my path so ultimately positively was. I was about a year with the company. He asked to meet with the CEO and me. He was going to bring his his uh, lawyer to the meeting. 
Uh, I didn't, we didn't know the purpose of the meeting, but in the meeting, uh, he told my boss, the CEO, um, uh, it's my plan to get control of a majority of the stock of the company and then buy the entire company. And, um, and I'm going to fire you guys and all the senior management. I'm going to cut uh, the overhead way back and take control and direction of the brand for the system. This was a total shock to us and to our founder, who was still the largest stockholder. So the consequence of what happened here, while initially um, it was one of uh, you know, my, we're operating in the middle of this oil bus, I sure hate to lose my job. Yeah. In fact, what, in fact, what it became was uh, the founder um, going to his friends, fellow stockholders, and getting options on 51% of the stock to head off Barrett's attempt. But the jewel for us, meaning management and those who came to own the company, the jewel for us was, uh, for any number of reasons, the the founder, when he got that 51%, he actually turned to the CEO and said, um, I will give you the opportunity to buy this for fair market value. And I think he did that to kind of protect himself for claims by other stockholders that he had just kind of stolen a good deal from them with the, with Jim, that Jim Barrett was going to provide. The effect of this was one, it stopped Barrett. That was the most immediate effect and that was the intended right. effect. But the second effect was it suddenly put the option to buy the company in the CEO's lap. And in fact, though none of us had any money, we went out and put together a deal to buy the company, uh, which we did it took us a year to get that whole thing done. But with few with few assets at all, uh, individual assets, uh, we did a leverage buyout using the company's assets uh, to buy the company, and this put the company on a different path. And clearly, uh, you can see in retrospect, put me on a different path uh, as well. Yeah, it was a. I mean, again, being a jack of all trades gives you an opportunity to step in and do certain things and have the flexibility and be able to react, or I should say. Be able to act and not react yeah. in a positive way to turn something yeah. that could have been extremely negative into something yes. very positive. Yes. And and I think that Jim was one of those people. And you never know sometimes in your life when people put those things out there, what's really intended for it, what it's intended to do. And in mm. your case, you guys uh, made lemonade out of lemons, right? Yes, well, so that was, that was good. Now I'm going to skip a few of your rules if you don't mind, but for my listeners, this book has some great rules in it, but we're going to move to a, a rule number eight, uh, which is a win-win approach is the only way to sustain growth. Growth. What advice would you give our listeners about creating this win-win approach in life as well as in business so that they can grow and prosper? Yeah. Well, it strikes me that um, uh, it's hard to imagine a business. Um, um, I mean, if you've got customers, uh, which if we have business, we all got customers, you know, right. You, you're, you have to be thinking about um, how to, uh, how to offer the product or the service that you're offering in such a way that it can enhance your customers uh, business as well. And if you're not thinking that way, you're you're probably going to have a, a different outcome in the success of your own operation. But if you are thinking that way, you should you're you know clearly you should be communicating that way. Um, I'm stating that generally. I will say from my standpoint, 
Uh, my business career, 23 years as CEO of uh, running a franchise, restaurant franchise system. Right. And so my, my uh, view became and my continuous communication to our franchise operators was, in the long run, I will only win if you win. And so my job is to make the brand stronger and make your stores, your, 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 your individual representation of that brand stronger, which was number one measurement of that was sales and profitability. Right. Or other measurements as well. But that was the number one measurement. And so we had a goal every year. You could say as a a corporation, you know, weren't we all focused on corporate profitability? We had a goal every year, which we published for our operators. We will work to grow the average store owned by a franchisee. We will grow the average store's profitability in this way by this amount. So it was continuously a win-win approach to the business. And this this had the effect of, uh, one, helping keep people on board and aligned with what we're doing. But it also gave us the authority when someone, back to your concept about the guardrails, um, the parameters you manage within, um, it, it also gave us uh, 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 authority, um, legitimized the process when people painted out or, or yeah, went outside the lines and, right. and really went beyond the system because we took that win-win approach and our perspective was the per- people that went outside that were actually going to put that win-win at risk. I think in the long run that life has uh, lived best that way. Uh, well, I think when we watch, uh, you know, one of the problems that we get so frustrated about watching uh, Washington, D.C. and the leadership there is that um, I think a person that uh, uh, I, I believe this to be the case, a person that goes in and espouses a win-win approach and how can you get what you need and I'll get what I need. Uh, today is almost laughed at, and it's difficult for them to uh, sustain a leadership position, you know, publicly espousing that or even privately working that direction. Well, I um, think everybody, I'm not going to say everybody, but I think many of my listeners would agree that the whole political system, and I, I know it sounds trite, but it is broken. Um, you know, how can you spend millions and millions of dollars campaigning for a position and taking additional amounts of money everywhere? Uh, that, in my estimation, this is my own political commentary needs to change uh, because that in itself sets up uh, not so much collaboration, uh, but conflict. And yeah. I think when you look at the triple win, which is people, planets, and profit, then we look at a different situation altogether as well. And I think when you start to take a consciousness view of the fact that we need to really shift what's going on in this world, we do need to look at everything in context with the with the three uh, people, planets, and profit kind of situation. Yeah. In- interesting. Yeah, yeah. because it, it, it's it got to be that. And that's where we're seeing everything head, fortunately. Now, yeah. we're going to wrap up the interview kind of with this last question, Cliff. And I just – I always do this at the end because I think it's an opportunity for the authors to just kind of think about the book and then say, okay, if I was reading this book and I had the, quote, Cliff Notes version, meaning Cliff's Cliff's Notes, you even have notes at your website. What three things would you want to leave our listeners with that advice you'd want them to take away that maybe is actionable, maybe is not actionable, but I always love to give them three tidbits that are actionable. Maybe it's a couple of your rules, whatever. Right. 
Right. So I would uh, I would say uh, two or three things, and they they're they're life stories, but maybe they're also um, work and business stories. Um, one is, you know, we always hear the keep your nose to the grindstone sort of thing, and but I think there's a difference between um, uh, keeping your head down in that circumstance versus keeping your head up. And when your head's up, you're going to see opportunities that come along, and and uh, it doesn't mean you don't have to work hard. Doesn't mean you don't have to. Uh, uh, produce on the more narrow expectations your employer might have, but but keep your head up because you'll see more of what's going on. You'll learn more broadly, and uh, and and over time the outcome will be positive for you. So that that's one element. Another element is uh, in the vein of curiosity. You know, seek variety because. Uh, I think be curious. Uh, be curious. <laughs> yeah. Yes, be curious. Yeah, yeah. because. You may uh, um, you may have the view that uh, uh, gee my boss uh, you know their expectations I got to work more hours I got to work more hours, but there quickly is a uh, diminishing return there. And the uh, I I found um, you know as a younger person I eventually you know stopped doing this when we had our second child, but I was amazed going to my church choir on a Thursday evening and singing practice for two hours. What a head clearing experience that was. And I could have been working that evening, you know, producing other document or whatever. But in fact, my productivity would increase by, by, uh, uh, and where'd we freeze up? Yeah, no, it goes up. Oh, I Your see. productivity I goes, goes, up. goes up. I'm sorry. The more time you up. spend doing <laughs> activities yes. such as yoga, yes. exercise, biking, yes. singing, whatever, yes. it's very proven that the mind then has the ability yes. to come back in in a new different yes. way and re-trigger. Yeah. So, so pursuing variety, uh, yeah. and 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 it's not variety for variety's sake. It is what are the things you're curious about in life? What clicks for you? And follow yeah. those. And yeah. just because it's not it's it's not income producing doesn't mean anything. If it, if it clicks for you, go for it. Right. So so um, I I would say those two things are very uh, kind of general life story elements. And then one the the other thing I would say for a particular young person starting their career. Um, the the whole concept of um, master of nine jack of all trades is not intended to say uh, don't work hard. In fact, I think you do have to apply yourself quite seriously on a sustained right. basis. And if you're going to achieve anything, you're largely going to get out of it what you put into it. And so that is part of the uh, uh, the life equation. And yeah. uh, it would it, it would it would be uh, uh, unfortunate for a person young uh, earlier in their career to. Uh, misinterpret the theme of the book to uh, mean you don't have to work hard. The fact is, I think you, if you're going to achieve much, you do have to work hard. Um, uh, but I think doing it in a creative way, open to change, open to new opportunities, keeping your head up, embracing um, uh, 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 experiences on a broader basis will make you a richer person and will also uh, make you a more profitable business operator if that's what you're doing with your life. Well, Cliff, it's been a pleasure having you on. And I think one of what you're really saying is uh, like the people that uh, look at the philosophy of stoicism, what's in your control and what's out of your control. And the reality is we don't control everything that happens in our life. As a matter of fact, there's a lot that is not in control, but there is much that is in control. And when we take a look at that, we have an opportunity, as you said, when you're curious uh, to really uh, seize those opportunities. Um, and those are the things that are in control. 
You know, they come our way. Hey, look, we can seize that opportunity. But like you said, say yes, then figure it out. I love that right. one. That's a great rule of thumb. For all yeah. my listeners, pick up a copy of this book. We're going to have a link to it on Amazon called Master of None. We've been on with Cliff Hudson speaking about this book and his rules of thumb. It's worth getting it just for the rules of thumb. You can also go to his website at cliffordhudson.com. There you can download a free chapter if you need to read that ahead of time. You also He's got a podcast as well. You can listen to his podcast Cliff, pleasure having you on Insight Personal Growth, spending a few minutes with my listeners talking about your new book. Uh, Love it, and I love the rules. Thank you so much. Greg, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate the opportunity as well. Thank you. You take care. Okay.